Episode 227 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Susan Pierce Thompson. Radio team, welcome along to episode 227 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Welcome to 2022. Uh, let's, let's be honest, most of us are crossing our fingers that by the end of this next 12 months, the, the idea of COVID will be a thing of the past. Now, I won't put my life on the fact that that may be the case. But I put my hope on the fact that that may be the case. Uh, just got to say, uh, it's been an interesting kind of 18 months, two years, hasn't it? And I don't know. I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is the moment where it's not a part of the conversation. Because pretty much every conversation you have right now is there's some aspect of COVID related to it. And so it would be nice to get to that time when we don't have to talk so much about COVID. But that's not what today's show is about. Today's show, I have an interview with a lady by the name of Susan Pierce Thompson. Uh, she is a PhD in brain science or, or brain stuff you'll talk about later on. Uh, but she's actually really into food addiction and she takes kind of neuroscience into food addiction. She actually created a product called Bright Light Eating. She said, uh, two, when we recorded this interview, she was about to find out if her third book was on the New York Best Time Seller list. So if she may have three books, the best time selling books. Uh, either way, she's got two and she's got a new book that's just came out recently. Uh, she's also got a weight loss, or well, it's not really weight loss, it's more for people who've suffered with, with food addiction. It's called Bright Line Eating. Uh, and we touch on it in the interview. And uh, what I really love about this interview is, is Susan has a very colourful life and A, I love the fact she doesn't beat around the bush around it and there's some really, so basically we speak, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 minutes, the first two thirds of it is just talking about her life because it's very fascinating and you're about to find out, talk about overcoming adversity to change your life, it's pretty phenomenal. And then, uh, and then obviously she studied and became a doctor uh, and uh, or a PhD, and then now moved on to create a product that's helping lots of people with food addiction. And so we talk a little bit about what is food addiction uh, and what are the really good ways to manage that. So it's a really cool, insightful interview in lots of ways. It's going to be coming up really soon. The only thing I want to talk about before I get and we get into the interview with Susan is just like I'm really proud of it. It's a silly thing to be proud of, but it's something I'm quite proud of. So on New Year's Eve. Uh, we went to. Unfortunately, my my wife's father passed away last week, so it's been a very sad time, and it's been an, a different kind of Christmas for my for my wife and myself because um, we've been dealing with her father's sickness, and, and sadly he passed away last week. But on New Year's Eve, we've got a couple of friends who we hang out for a lot, and um, they had some, you know, just kind of like a barbecue at their place on New Year's Eve, and it was quite nice just to have a moment where. We stepped away from the big life stuff that we were going through, and it was actually really nice for my wife because it's been such a consuming time for her. So we went around and hung out with some mates, and uh, we're the kind of people who can just have fun. You know, we we don't you know we like we don't need the lubricant to have fun, if you know what I mean. Like we we don't need to drink to have fun, and we basically at about 
9.30, we put some music on and we're, we're doing some karaoke and we're dancing away and we're just having a really good night. And one of my friends, Kate, she brought, or Kate and Jeff, they were one of her friends, they had their kids there and they brought a friend of one of their kids to this kind of barbecue. And as Kate was driving home, her friend's, her daughter's friend turned to her and said, oh my, oh my God, Bevan was so drunk at the, when you guys were dancing and having fun. And Kate cracked up laughing because she goes, Bevan doesn't even drink. And, and the kid couldn't get over the fact that I didn't drink. And I'm just kind of, it's a, it's a funny thing to be proud of, but I'm kind of proud of that comment because I think the ability to have fun and let go is a really good skill to have in life. And I think, unfortunately for a lot of people, they need the stimulant to be a version of themselves they like to be. And I just think that it's, like I know when I gave up drinking, here's a really interesting thing. When I gave up drinking alcohol, one of the most powerful things about giving up drinking of alcohol was not just the damage that you stop doing to your life, particularly for someone like me who was a really bad drinker, is that you have to confront all of the things that you thought you needed alcohol for. And I remember the first time that I had to go out to a nightclub, and, and I gave a drink when I was like 20, so, you know, I'm at that age where you're going to nightclubs pretty much every weekend, and I remember going to a nightclub, and the idea of dancing, I, I think probably for the first four or four times, four or five times that I went out at that stage in my life, I didn't even dance at all, I just kind of sat on the sidelines and felt a little bit awkward, and then I think eventually one night, I kind of, you know, I slowly stepped towards the dance floor, slowly moved in, slowly kind of did a bit of side shuffle, and then eventually I started dancing. And what I quickly realised was that no one's thinking about me. Like, no, we're just having a good time together. And, and to be honest, in those environments, most people are pretty drunk. So, that you know, it's, it's really not about you at all. And so it was that whole thing of why even be self-aware because no one's even, you're not even in other people's minds, if you know what I mean. And it was a really good lesson to learn because it taught me that you can just have fun, just you know, if you want to have fun, get up and have fun. You don't need alcohol to have fun. And that was a part of the journey of addiction away from me, was A, stopping the, the substance, the drugs and alcohol, but B, actually learning that I can be the version of myself without the substance. And so on New Year's Eve or the next day when Kate told us, you know, this is what this kid said, it was a really cool moment for me because it was kind of like it was just that reinforcing of you know I know how to have fun and I, I don't need anything to kickstart that within me I can just get up and have fun and I'm quite lucky because most of my friends are that way inclined as well so we kind of we just get up and have fun and so it probably makes it easy for me as well but it was just one of those random things where it was life reinforcing something that's pretty cool for me so I just wanted to share that with you guys hopefully in your life you know you know how to participate in life in a way that's really enriching for you. You know, we're going to get into the interview really soon. I just want to say a big thank you to the patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com, click on podcast, click on support me. You'll go to the patron page, go through the payment process, and then you'll donate some of your money each time I release an episode. And these people are some of the people, oh, oh, oh you also get a cool nickname. And these are some of the people who are cool patrons. Michael, the Hammer Nook, we've got Renee the Hawk Hawes, we've got Michael Hardcore OK. Now, I saw Michael walking down the street not long ago, so hopefully you're doing well, Michael. Uh, Samuel Mysterious Man Molino Weaver and Donald the Explorer James. These are amazing patrons of the show, so if you want to become a patron and support what I do and the message that I put out there, go to bevanjamesisles.com and just go through that process. Anyway, here is my interview with Susan Pierce Thompson.
Alrighty, team. I'm very excited to have a, a, a doctor, Susan Pierce Thompson, on the on the show today. She's an author, a doctor, a, a nutritionist. Uh, are you actually a nutritionist, or are you? What's, what's I'm the, not. What's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm a brain scientist, actually. I'm a brain scientist. I actually often warn people I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a medical doctor. So yeah. I send people away to. You got the PhD. You, you are a doctor, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Hey, so um, let's start from scratch. So maybe just give us a quick overview about yourself and what got you to where you are today. Oh gosh, Bevan. <laughs> yeah. So for that, I gotta go. I gotta go way back um, because what I do today really stems from I I help people by. Uh, teaching them how their brain is blocking them from losing weight. And um, I came to that because my food and my weight struggles really defined my life for most of my life. And I wasn't um, a, a super heavy kid, but by the age of 11, I weighed more than I weigh now. Um, and by the time I was in high school, I was really concerned about my weight. And I started actually doing drugs to manage my eating and to lose weight. And also because I was just a really uh, adventuresome teenager and I was having a lot of fun at the time, but it escalated from there. And, um, you know, a speed addiction turned into a cocaine addiction, turned into a crack cocaine addiction. This was back in the early nineties. And uh, I dropped out of high school and uh, turned to prostitution and um, really was in bad shape by the age of 19. Um, just after my 20th birthday, uh, I got struck clean and sober, which was a miracle. And I haven't had a drink or a drug in 27 years, which is great. But my addiction just hopscotched from drugs right over to food. And I mm -hmm. ballooned up. I was obese by the age of 23, uh, 26. I was obese um, and struggled all through my 20s to figure out how to lose weight. I had kicked drugs and I could tell that my eating was an addiction. That That became very clear to me. And I think having just come out of such intense drug addiction, I, I was really poised to see how my eating was an addiction. It was very clear to me that it was the same dynamic. Um, but, but I think because you have to eat, you yeah, know, yeah, um, yeah. I couldn't figure out how to- You can't go cold turkey on food, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. It's maddening. Yeah. It's maddening. It's one of the reasons that food addiction, in, in my opinion, is the hardest to kick. And so I, I did 12-step food programs, um, sometimes with some success, sometimes not. I did end up losing my excess weight when I was 28 years old. I've been in what I call a right-sized body or a bright body um, for 17 years now, which is an anomaly. Most people who are obese uh, or who struggle with obesity never um, make it to a normal BMI and then stay there for decades. Yeah. Um, but you know, I went, I went to school after I got clean and sober, I went to school and did really well and ended up getting my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences from a really top school and, um, became a psychology professor, uh, taught the psychology of eating. And, um, now I'm an expert in the neuroscience of food addiction. And I teach people how to lose weight, um, by really understanding how addictive food can be. So I have three books out, New York times bestsellers. Uh, two of them. I'm actually waiting as as we record this right now. I'm waiting to hear in about an hour and a half if the third book hit the New York Times bestseller list. So mm -hmm. I will find out soon. Um, but two of them, the first two did. Anyway, so that's that's my story in a nutshell. That's how I ended up doing what I do. There's a lot of unpack here. So when you go to the very start, when you know you're you're a very young child, and so when you're saying you're you know you're overweight for your age at least. Um, 
was it just so consuming for you at that time? You know, you say you've gone to drugs and obviously there's a kind of recreational aspect of it, but really you were just trying to escape. Is that when you reflect back on that time? I don't think I was trying to escape. I think I was, I was trying to manage my eating. I really enjoyed the appetite suppressant effect of the drug, the stimulant okay. drugs that I was doing. And I, and I was partying, I was having a lot of fun. So yeah. I was, I was, those were the two main, and I was really into boys at the time. Right. So yeah. I was like, I was 14, 15, 16 years old. I was getting into flirtations and, yeah. and boyfriends and stuff like that. And uh, I enjoyed not having to think about eating because I already it was worrisome how much I wanted to eat, you know, more food than I knew was kind of warranted. <laughs> I would wow. just keep eating. Yeah. And so then you, you go through to kind of to the dark side of that, that life. What was the epiphany moment for you? Uh, the epiphany moment was I was 20 years old. I just turned 20. Um, it was a Tuesday morning. It was August 9th, 1994. I only know that because of what ended up unfolding historically in my life. But I'd been in the, I was in a crack house in San Francisco, California. I'd been there for days. I'd been, wow. you know, I was smoking crack at that time for four, five, six, seven days in a row. I just day turned into night, turns into day, yeah. turned into night. And I'd been there all through the weekend. And it was Tuesday morning around nine or 10 AM. And I was still there. And, um, I, my head was shaved, not shaved with a razor, but like buzzed, you know, my yeah. head was buzzed. I had piercings all through my, you know, my tongue and my ears yeah. and all over and stuff. And, um, I had a blonde wig on my head. I was, you know, a prostitute at the time. And, um, there was a couple kicking heroin. They were like shaking, um, kind of over there. And, um, Bevan, I just had this awakening kind of I just from from numbness and um monotony somehow in that moment I just woke up like I just somehow was there present awake and and I looked around and I got the full force the full awareness of my condition and where I was and then a knowing came. I don't think it was a voice. I think it was a clarity. It was a forceful knowing. And it, it, I, I, I was, I thought, look at, look at me. I'm 19. I'm 20. I just turned 20. And I had, I'd been a really good student as a little kid. You know, I had dreamt of going to Harvard and I wanted to be a, an astrophysicist and I had all these, you know, I was a super sharp little kid and um, sort of what had happened to me kind of really came to me. And then this knowing came and the knowing was, if you don't get up and get out of here right now, this is all you're ever going to be. And I could sort of feel my life in the future as an endless cycle of cycles of drug use. Because at that time, I'd already been through um, at least three major cycles of heavy drug use where I'd quit and I'd kind of, then I'd gotten back into it. Um, And this was like the third time that I was hitting bottom with these drugs. And so um, I believed it. I believed I had to get out of there right then. And I, I looked around, I grabbed my jacket and I walked out the door 
And there were people in that room that I used with regularly, but I didn't say goodbye to anybody. I didn't say anything. I just walked out the door. And I was so shaken by that clarity that, um, you know, at the time I didn't have a place to live. I wasn't living any place. Um, I didn't have a key to, to mm. a place to go to, to go anywhere. And mm. um, so I went over to this guy's house that I used to stay with sometimes, this guy Baltazar. I looked him up online recently. He, he died um, uh. a while ago. But anyway, he was a billionaire at the time, like a literal billionaire. And he lived up in this penthouse in San Francisco. And I, I, I went and I had to clear myself through the security and I went up knocked and he opened the door and um he took one look at me and he just looked like whoa <laughs> um he just sort of pointed to the spare bedroom like go sleep it off and so I did I went and I slept it off and um after a few hours of sleep I felt better and I showered and then I felt way better and I remember like just putting my pager on my hip I mean this is way back in the day when you know a call girl yeah. would use a pager to you know, get, get gigs or whatever. And, um, I remember thinking I was just going to go back out to work that night, but first I had this date with this, I was going out with this really cute guy that I'd met at a gas station at three in the morning earlier that week. And we went out and he said, you want to go to a meeting? And I didn't know what he was talking about really. So oh, okay. I guess I agreed. And he took me to a 12 step meeting for drug and alcohol recovery. Okay. He was four years sober at the time. And he was a sex addict, which is why he'd picked me up. He knew that I was a call girl. And, um, but he was also four years sober off drugs and alcohol. And he brought me to this meeting. There were hundreds of people there. It was a big to-do. It was called Tuesday Downtown in, in Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And I went to this meeting. I got a 24-hour coin, you know, like no drugs or alcohol for 24 hours. I think I was like barely 24 hours off the crack pipe. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since. I started going to meetings and um, working the 12 steps. And that was it. It was just a fluke. It was like my moment of clarity came right back to back with this dude taking me where I needed to be. <laughs> it just stuck. And so, so you're like, it's, it's, a, it's a amazing story. Um, B, um, so then you, you, you'll kind of wake up, you, you realize you've got past the transition moment, but you, you, there's a life to rebuild now, isn't there? So what, what, what yeah. happens from that moment forward? Cause you know, yeah. you're saying you kind of turn to food. So, so you obviously have some bad behaviors around how to deal with the stresses of your life. So kind of what happened totally. post that moment? Yeah. Well, um, totally. I mean, well, first of all, I act as if recovery was just like, we like, yeah, perfect, yeah, right? yeah, but like yeah. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know where I was in that yeah. meeting. I didn't know what that, what the hell that was. And it took me a while to even figure it out. Um, so it was really just, uh, by magic kind of that I even stayed clean that first month or two. It I didn't even start going to other meetings for like, a good three weeks. It, it just, it took a long time for the fog to lift, but I ended up moving back in with my mom who was um, going back to school herself in her forties down in San Jose, California. So I moved in with my mom. I enrolled in community college, um, which, you know, I was able to take a test and just, just get right into community college. So I started taking some college classes. I got a job at a movie theater selling popcorn I stopped tricking that first, that I never went back to it. Um, I don't think, you know, it's interesting because I was working for an agency and I'd given them a pretty hefty deposit, I think. And I never got my deposit back. Um, I remember that. So it was not like I decided to stop. It was just one day at a time. I never went back to it. I never okay. signed into work again. Yeah. 
Um, so I left that life behind. I got a job at a movie theater and um, I did really well at community college. And I transferred to UC Berkeley just a year later. Um, and I ended up getting 4.0s at UC Berkeley, majoring in cognitive science. Um, and I spoke at the graduation, like I crushed it um, at UC Berkeley. And so by then, I was starting to have some more skillful habits, but the food at that point had really taken over. And so I was, yeah. I was managing my stress around writing college papers and stuff like that with eating. And I remember having some really big binges. I remember there was a Mrs. Fields cookies um, stand or shop or whatever, like two blocks away from my apartment. And I remember, um, you know, really battling, you know, not wanting to, if I would go there and like, not just get like a cookie, but I, you know, they were, they were the yeah. size of a fate of your face, right? These <laughs> massive America, cookies, right? You know? <laughs> I'd, I'd get like six of them, you know, yeah. which is yeah. like, you know, I don't know, 3000 calories in cookies <laughs> or something. I'd get like a lot of them anyway. Um, so yeah, I was really struggling with my eating, but I was doing really well academically. And then I went to graduate school. I applied to five graduate schools everywhere in the world that at that time, my field was brand new back then cognitive science or brain mm -hmm. and cognitive sciences, mm -hmm. brand new. This was like 1995, six, seven. Um, so there were five schools in the world that had a PhD program in that. And I applied to all of them. I got into all of them. So we're talking Johns Hopkins, San Diego. Anyway, I ended up going to the University of Rochester, which was the best school um, I thought in the world at that time. I, I visited all of them and I liked it the best. So I moved out to Rochester. Um, I got a full stipend there. They even, they paid my tuition and they gave me a little bit of money to live on. So I didn't have any debt or anything like that. I started teaching um, in grad school. So I, I started, you know, just two years into grad school, I, I started teaching and I loved that even more than research. And um, yeah, still the food. Oh my God, I started, I was doing 12 step meetings and it just wasn't working. It just wasn't clicking the way it did with the drugs and the alcohol. And I just couldn't figure out how to put down the food, like where the boundaries were. Or if I did create boundaries myself, I couldn't find so that I could stick to them. Um, it was just mad. At the time, was, 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 you know, because so you've gone from a place where, you know, you're at the lowest of the low and, you know, it's a pretty horrible place in life. And then you kind of have this transition and I imagine you're building massive confidence and esteem and, you know, because you're mm -hmm. doing so well and at such a high level, but then you have this conflict of this one era of your life, which has a massive control over you. So what was that internal battle like at that time? You know, Bethan, I guess I was used to it because I'd, I'd always had sort of, that internal struggle in one way or another, right? Yeah. I mean, I think even as a little kid, I procrastinated, I, I, I lied, I stole as a little kid. Um, uh, you know, my, I was an only child. My parents got divorced when I was four. And so I was, I was alone a lot. I was either with my mom or with my dad, but um, there was a lot of sort of I don't know, just kind of sneaking, like I would be alone and I would do stuff that I know they wouldn't approve of or whatever. And so I think I was used to it. it you know, there was an incongruence there. Like I see mm. what you're saying, but it didn't mm. feel that unusual to me. I think, okay. I think I'd always had that. I think I'd always had that. Um, I have a lot less of that now. Recovery is a, it's a very gradual, very progressive thing. And I think I have more congruence in my life now than I ever have, you know, um, I think just gradually I, my brain has healed a lot over the years. Like I just don't need 
today to scratch the itch of addiction the way I used to. And I have a lot, I've built up a lot more positive, helpful coping mechanisms. So when I need to, when I'm stressed and I need to cope, like I'll call a friend, I might curl up and read a book for a little bit. I might give myself a bubble bath. Um, you know, I might go out for a hike around my house. Like I just won't, I just don't, you know, like in the past I would make a big bowl of cookie dough and eat it. Yeah. So you've (laughs) you've got really healthy ways to deal with your stresses instead of those. Yeah. But it's taken a lot of years to shed Mm. those layers of stressors. And even like, even not that long ago, like four years ago or something, I went back to cigarettes again, briefly. God bless me. I was outside of a 12 step meeting and there were just a lot of young, good, good looking people smoking yeah. outside. And I think I just felt lonely and I just thought, Oh, that would be nice. I just like to go. So I just asked one of them if I could borrow a, you know, have yeah. borrow, bomb a cigarette, you know, and they gave me one. And I just thought that would be it. Like, hello, I've like world's expert in addiction thinks the first cigarette will just be one cigarette. Hello. Yeah. So it's now, funny, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have a very similar story to yours and in, in the kind of drugs and all the rest of it. And uh, so I don't, I'm, don't do drugs, don't smoke, don't drink. Um, and, but my one weakness is Coke Zero. And 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 I have some really strict rules around Coke Zero because I could drink 20 litres a day. Um, but it's a, I, I like having it in my life because it's a reminder of I can't open doors. You know what I mean? Like it's a reminder that, you know, with my Coke Zero, I've, I've got like there's two days later, a week I'm allowed to drink it. And if I don't drink it, I have a month. I've got all these strategies I have and they work really well and, I, and I'm really good at sticking to them. But just Wait, that, say this again. You have two days a week that you're allowed to drink it. Yeah, yeah. What are the days? Just curious. Uh, Friday, Saturday. So I'll have as much as I want on a Friday, and if we go out for dinner on a Saturday night, I'll have it as well. And so, and then if, if I and my rule is, if you have it any other day of the week, you're gonna have a month off. And I'm the kind of person that if I have it any other day of the week, I'll have a month off. So I'll really stick to that rule, and so it works. I manage it really well with those kind of criteria, but. It's a, it's just a reminder of my life because it is the, the one thing I have a slight addiction to, but I've, you know, within the, you know, of all the addictions I know, but, but it's a reminder <laughs> that I can't open doors, you know, like yeah. I'm, I can't just have this one night where I get on the piss. I can't have, you know, smoke dope at a party occasionally, you know, like yeah. if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go hundred percent. And so there's just, you know, and to understand that about, and obviously you're very similar in this way that, you can't be the person who's outside having just think, oh, let's have a ciggy tonight. It's, it's, yeah. It's actually, no. there's, there's just doors in our lives of people, personality types like ours where you just can't open doors. And, and, and to yeah. know and under the good thing with people like us it tends to be that if we can redirect that energy in good areas, we, we can achieve so much. And that's obviously what you've done, but it's, it's understanding that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And, you know, it's interesting just to, know the research it about one third of the population is like us pretty you know high on the addictive Mm. susceptibility scale one third's moderate and one third doesn't have any at all so i really bristle when people say well everybody's addicted to something Mm. and i'm like no they're not actually Mm. everyone's Mm. got bad habits Mm. (laughs) you know but not everybody uses to the point of like going Exist. What am I doing? Like, yeah. you know, like I'm doing this with tears streaming down my face kind of thing. Right. Or like, yeah. just like knocking myself on the head going like, I don't want to be doing this anymore. I'm hurting myself, like flagrantly hurting yourself, mm. like past the promise of I swore I wouldn't. Mm. Um, yeah. Not everybody has an addiction. And as a matter of fact, there are a lot of people who are very unlike us who absolutely can have a cigarette at a party 
because they want one. And then their brains will not suggest that they should have one again Mm -hmm. until the next, you know, six months later, you know, they're at a party or whatever and, and they want to. There's even people who can drink coffee, who drink coffee, you know, ad libitum, meaning like, you know, whenever, however, but not every day. You know, mm. and I'm like, really? But they do. You know, <laughs> they don't need it every day. It's crazy. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so, go back to your story. So then you're you're kind of excelling with your studies, but at the same time, you're not managing your eating. But so then you stay. You kind of you figure out your kind of your weight journey at least, or your your weight management journey at least. So, what was the keys to figuring that out? And and at the same time, obviously, you're doing your studies. So there's obviously a crossover of what you're learning and what you're applying to yourself. So maybe talk about that. Yeah. So, um, I didn't figure it out myself, the behavioral piece that kind of made it click into place. I found a different 12 step food program that, um, had much clearer, stricter rules around what to eat and not eat. And so the effect of that was that it, it kind of made it clear, if you will, what the first drink is, you know, suddenly I was really clear. Okay this bite of food is on my plan and anything else is off my plan. Right. Um, and with that clarity and the sort of, um, unity in the fellowship about that, I was able to lose my excess weight. So I give you very clear guidelines and there's a sense of community around what you were doing. Yes, totally, totally. And, uh, and it worked like a charm. My weight came off really fast. I still have some, some, issues with that fellowship because there's a lot of judgmental judgmentalism in it um a lot of judgmentalism and um uh and i think it it can be really harmful for people so i don't frequently recommend it which is kind of sad because i think it's what it's what works right but that's why i founded bright line eating was to was to start something that would work but um have at its foundation, you know, just deep compassion and absolute, um, how would I put it? Like, uh, um, respect for people's self-authorship over their journey. Um, I think that 12-step program had a lot of, um, I guess the new word is gaslighting, right? A lot of like, oh, well, if you're not willing to go to three in-person 90-minute meetings every week because you've got four kids and you're single, you're not willing to take your food addiction seriously and I can't work with you then, right? And it's like, well, that's not actually the situation, you know, Um, that sort of thing, right? So, yeah, so... But I did, for me at the time, it was a godsend. I mean, it really was. And it, it not only- it And you're a bit of an A-type personality, it, so that works with your kind of personality. Yeah, it actually yeah. was a good, really good fit for a really yeah. long time. And it was kind of as I wisened a little bit and had kids and, and you know what, what interestingly, what the break was for me was years later, I'm talking like 11 years later, that program was, um, we were, I was a perfect fit for it for a long time. But I started um, wanting to be uh, eat plant-based and they had a lot of judgmentalism about that. Oh no, you can't do that. You know? And I was sort of like, well, I feel like it's the healthier path for me. And I do have a body that um, really prefers it. Um, you know, when I eat meat and dairy, I'm constipated and it's just, it's not as good for me. So um, yeah, so that was the first time that I was sort of like, this isn't, you know, I was getting people telling me that I was, um, 
you know, being willful and this and that. And I was sort of like, I don't feel like that's what is happening with me. I actually just feel like I'm on a journey with my health that feels empowering. And I, that ostracization <laughs> that I experienced over that sort of was the beginning of my realizing like, oh, there's aspects to this community that are really unhealthy. So my husband had seen it for a long time. As a matter of fact, he left me over it for a while because um, I was working that program with such rigor and uh, uh, fanaticism that he he didn't want to be with me. He was like, you're crazy over that program. And um, I had to kind of... So did you feel desperately stuck it. to it? You know, because, you know, it seems like you're the kind of person who, um, if you, again, if you're going to do it, you're going to do it. You know, so you're going to do something 100%. Yeah. And so, so, and you needed this program at a certain moment. It was very structured, very kind of rules-based, which, you know, you, you'll follow. Uh, and it got you to the place you wanted to get to. So did, did it was almost like you were bound to it in a way where there was a fear of, if I didn't do 100%, what happens to me? Maybe. I mean, I was a leader in that program in that I had built up a lot of social capital and, okay. you know, I really liked the respect that I had there. And I had, I had long-term deep friendships there that were very so true and beneficial, well. a lot of identity. And I think, um, and I think like some religions, right, as well or whatever, there was a lot of belief structure that was built up and there was a lot of like, well, I need this and I'll be lost without it. And I, you know, I am a food addict. And if I, you know, deviate, it's good. You know, I, so there was a lot of um, kind of when I left that program, I had to kind of retrain a lot of things. And, you know, I have learned over time that a lot of what they taught was right on, frankly, food addiction is a beast. And you do have to be pretty, especially if your condition is as far bad, you know, far gone as mine is, you have to be pretty, pretty on it to, to recover and stay on track. But Anyway, so that's enough of, about that. Um, at the time, interestingly, I was studying the mind and the brain, but I wasn't yet studying uh, the food addiction piece academically. That would come later. That would come a few years later in one of my faculty appointments as a professor. I started teaching a college course on the psychology of eating, and that ended up um, sort of leading to me um, studying it a bunch so that I could teach it well, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. What is food addiction? How do you, how do you define food addiction? You know, uh, food addiction is like any other addiction. Interestingly, it, well, actually it's not, it, it has some unique features to it. So um, like, like any addiction, it involves sort of consuming a substance to the point of harm, right? Just beyond. Um, and What's interesting about food addiction is it's not just a substance addiction. It is a substance addiction. So we're talking about, um, in that way, not all foods, but processed foods. Like I, I, I distill it down to sugar and flour, but it, um, but potato chips are in the mix too. Technically, they're not made out of flour, but molecularly, the inside of the white potato after it's flash fried like that has the same molecular structure as white flour. So it's whatever. Um, but food addiction also qualifies as a process or behavioral addiction. And that's how you'll often see it classified in a list with things like gambling and watching pornography and internet gaming and things like that. 
And that's because the process of eating can be addictive as well. And in that way, people uh, can absolutely eat cabbage <laughs> addictively. I mean, I knew this woman who used to stand in the kitchen, which she had a lot of food restriction tendencies too. And she used to like obsessively spend her day eating mushrooms and, you know, lettuce dipped in mustard. And she would, you know, eat all day and eat 300 calories or something. And she was out of her mind with food addiction, but she wasn't eating any processed foods at all. Um, her food restriction part wouldn't let her do that. Anyway, so so food addiction is both a substance addiction and a process addiction. Um, and, you know, it has all the hallmark characteristics of addiction, right? A difficult, you know, a history of trying to cut back and not being able to succeed long term, you know, with with all these relapses in your past and, you know, losing control over how much you consume once you start and um, having it interfere with your life and, you know, sort of narrowing your activities or your whatever um, due to it, um, having it cause problems in your life and all of that. It's all part and parcel of addiction. Even the physiological piece, the tolerance and the withdrawal, we see that with food as well. People, you know, get on my program, Bright Line Eating, and they let go of sugar and flour and they act like they have the flu for a few days. Like they get um, headaches and shakes and yeah, it's terrible. Not all of them, but a lot of people do experience withdrawal. So um, essentially that's what, that's what food addiction is. I think, um, most people have been eating sugar and flour every day since they were one or two years old. So, uh, people often don't realize how addicted they are until they think about quitting. Uh, you, I should tell you, Mr. Coke zero that, um, artificial sweeteners are as bad as sugar and they're yeah. absolutely on the no, no list when it comes to sugar, you know, yeah. artificial sweeteners count. And then some, they actually have additional bad things about them, but the the sweet taste buds on the tongue have direct connections to the addiction centers of the brain. So it's, you know, the, the Coke zero is out for bright line eating purposes. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so then how do you treat food addiction? Yeah. Well, um, first there's treating the outer piece. Um, and then there's the inner work, right? Um, because of course we're, we're addicted as a coping strategy ultimately. Right. And there's inner work to be done too. Um, but, um, like I learned through hard one experience, you've got to be clear about what you're abstaining from. So that means, uh, creating a very structured food plan. So in bright line eating, it's four bright lines. Now a bright line is a clear, unambiguous boundary that you just don't cross. Okay. So, you know, if your addiction is cigarettes, that's easy. No yeah. cigarettes, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, um, it's black and white with food. The four bright lines are sugar. So no sugar of any kind, including artificial sweeteners, including honey and agave and stevia and all that stuff. No flour of any kind. It's not, the issue isn't the type of flour, almond flour, coconut flour, wheat flour. The issue is the processing, right? It's the processing that turns it into a drug, just like the coca leaves off the coca bushes in the Andes mountains in South America, you can put them in your cheek and chew them. They're not addictive, but it's when you extract the inner essence and refine and purify it into a fine white powder, that's when you've turned it into a drug. So mm -hmm. the issue is the purifying and the refining, the extracting, refining, purifying process that sugar and flour have undergone. That's what makes it a drug. So we abstain from those entirely. And then for to, that handles the substance addiction. 
to handle the process addiction, we need to put boundaries around our eating. Otherwise, our brain is always suggesting, did you eat enough? How about a little bit more? How about now? How about now? How about now? So um, eating only meals. So the third bright line is meals. So eating only meals, uh, no grazing, no snacking. And then quantities. So bounding the food consumption, either with like a one plate of food rule or like a, a di- I, we, I actually recommend a digital food scale, um, mostly so that people will eat enough. Otherwise they won't eat enough, especially not enough vegetables. Mm. Um, so um, yeah. And so then you just start doing that one day at a time and you start to build up integrity around your food. If you've got weight to lose, you start to lose your weight. You start to feel a lot more energetic, a lot more free. I mean, our research shows, and we've published studies um, in journals. So after just two months of doing, of doing this, people's peace and serenity with food has increased, not decreased. It doesn't make them crazy. It doesn't make mm. them obsessive trying to do this. They suddenly feel free and peaceful with their food. Um, hunger and cravings both go down steadily over those first two months so that at the end of the two months, they're like down to almost nothing, like no hunger, no cravings anymore. Um, our research shows that uh, in those first two months, um, interestingly, people at all ages lose weight equivalently. Now, you probably know that um, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s report difficulty losing weight, right? Especially mm-hmm. around the middle. Um, well, not in bright line eating. And the reason is that um, the hormonal changes that make it harder to lose weight later in life, it all has to do with how the class of hormones called estrogens, which both men and women have, actually, um, the estrogen hormones have a facilitating effect on insulin. And when you're young, and you have a lot of estrogen, estrogen is really robust in both men and women when you're young. Um, that That makes it so that you can get away with eating junk essentially because the estrogen helps your insulin, you know, store and release fat really readily makes your insulin really sensitive. Um, after you lose your estrogen though, you, you get, you lose that get out of jail free card. You can't, um, you can't get away with it as much, but when you stop eating sugar and flour, it basically turns someone who's 50 or 60 or 70 years old into the fat burning body of someone who's 20 or 30 years old. So um, in our program, people lose weight at all ages equivalently, which is really cool. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then we help people do the inner work so that they feel more socially connected, uh, more in tune with themselves, you know, greater inner peace. We support them in starting to meditate and um, just take really good care of themselves. Mm, so there is the, the choosing foods which allow them to move away from the, the chemicals which would trigger the addiction. And then there's the kind of the, the rules around eating that help you in a good place. And then there's kind of building a sense of connection around that. Yeah. Yeah. And when someone's successful, what does that look like? What does it look like when they're successful? Yeah. You know, obviously they're going to look better, but, but what's success? Because the reason I say that is because um, and people who listen to my show would have heard me say this in the past. I think one of the biggest problems is there's a lot of people out there who are really healthy who think about food too much. You know what I mean? Yes. You know what I mean? And it's like, to yes. me, one of the greatest assets in life is the ability to use your mind to think about things that freedom would think about. And so like for me, it's creativity, it's connecting with people, it's about growing. It's, you know, for me to spend hours of my day thinking about food, to me, is a waste of a life. Um, totally. 
And so totally, you, know, you and I you have know, that completely in common. Yeah. And yeah. so when you think about what is success, obviously there's this kind of management of the body, um, but also obviously we're trying to get people yeah. to a place where they're not actually thinking about food. That's right. That's right. Totally. Yes. And so ultimately I define success as um, freeing people up to be the people they were meant to be and to contribute their gifts fully to the world. And so absolutely shrinking down the amount of time that people are thinking about their food or their body or their weight, um, way down, not to zero, because it takes some thought and some management to sort of still attend to it in a healthy way. But I often uh, say it like this. I say, look, you know, because people are like, well, shouldn't I enjoy my food and stuff? It's like, well, look, yes, but you enjoy a hot shower, but you spend no time thinking about it before or after you enjoy it. And then you get on with your life, right? Yeah. Like it's a great blessing to have a hot shower. So enjoy your meals three times a day, but I don't want you thinking about them before or after, right? Done. Mm. Just eat it and move on. Um, yeah. It's a gift of the day. And it's just, it's just one piece of the day. Like that's great. Like a hot shower, right? That's it. Um, but, you know, I often say that the person in this world on this planet who will solve cold fusion and figure out our energy crisis isn't even working on the problem right now because they're starting their fourth diet this year, right? They're mm, yeah. uh, like, they're obsessed with what they've eaten or not eaten, whether they're on yeah. their plan or off their plan, how many miles, how many calories, how many pounds, they're obsessed. Yeah. And success looks like no more of that. And back to contributing your gifts fully to the world in whatever way that means to you. I mean, people are so varied and different in you know, what a thriving, flourishing life looks to them. But yes, more activities of flow, more engagement, more connection, more meaning. So, so there's, there's often, you know, the person who's a real success when they join these types of kind of programs and then there's the person who struggles. So what's the difference between the person who's really successful and the people who maybe struggle to get to the end point? Yeah. Um, I think the, Biggest difference usually is um, willingness at at the gate at the starting gate. So what happens with Brightline Eating is the system works remarkably well, and yeah. when you show up ready to really do it, um, things kind of click into place. And then I give people a lot of warning and guidance, like don't take it for granted. Don't get complacent. Don't, don't develop false cockiness and think that just because it's gotten really easy. Now you can start trying to game the system and, you know, cut, make shortcuts and stuff. If you really just take it as a gift and stay true to it, you could just have this problem solved for the rest of your life and just move on with it already. Um, and, and the people who really just succeed, they're kind of done when they get to my doors and they're just ready to do that. And the people who struggle, either they're just not at the place to fully surrender to the program when they arrive, or they arrive, they do great, they get the gift, and then they give it back. They decide, oh, I've done so great. I bet I can just, you know, eat cake on this cruise, you know, yeah, and yeah. then it'll be, I'll just get back on track. And, and then they start, you know, the cycles of starting and breaking and resuming and, you know, and so, so it goes. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, what's like often, uh, you know, we're very lucky, but you know, that we get to be leaders and we get to help people, but I, I love to ask people in, in our position, what's the thing you still struggle with? Um, I still struggle right now with just, I'm in a really hard season of life. You know, I got three kids 
and they're 13, 13, and 10. And COVID has been really hard on them, especially the 13-year-olds, like really hard. Mm. And, you know, I work a lot. And, um, and, and Brightline Eating has gotten to a juncture where it needs to get to the next level. And I'm scared about whether I can help it get there. Um, I'm getting some additional help because I'm not a business person. I'm a psychologist. Um, And uh, this movement needs to really grow. It really does. And, you know, how do I do that? You know, so, um, you know, we've got 33 employees. It's a lot. It's a lot to manage, you know. Um, And so for me, my biggest struggle is the muchness of it all, I think. I mean, I pray I'm through the worst of it because it's been a really hard few years. Um, but, uh, yeah, just the muchness of it right now. And, you know, just life is, life is seasons, you know, and this isn't, this isn't the quiet, um, (laughs) easy season. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) The the deep end swimming season. (laughs) (laughs) And and so who would you just, just so to kind of clarify, who is the target market for Brightline Eating? The target market for Brightline Eating is first and foremost, anyone who just struggles with their food and their weight and, and really wants a solution to it, right? So um, I think we could look around and probably pick out half the population who we mm. might say need Brightline Eating, right? Mm. But Brightline Eating isn't for everyone who needs it. Brightline Eating is for people who want it and are willing to work it. Yeah. And so that could be people who really struggle with their food and their weight. It could be people who... Um, don't struggle that badly, but like structured, effective solutions, right? Who are like, look, you know, I got 15 pounds to lose or 10 kilos to lose. And, you know, I'm not, I I don't think I have a food addiction problem, but I would rather have a lot of clarity about what to eat and when, and I'd rather have these few pounds or kilos off and I'm willing to follow a structured plan. So bright line eating is for someone like that too. Um, but the program was really created for people who are suffering, like really suffering with their food yeah. and their weight. Yeah. And, 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 and it, wait, let me just also say, not necessarily their weight. Research shows that 22% of people at a normal BMI right now test out uh, with full-blown food addiction. So, because oh, yeah, um, I, I work in fitness, you see so many people who are unhealthy with food. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. They're running another yeah. 10 miles so they can yeah. allow themselves, you know, another cup of non-fat frozen yogurt right (laughs) it's like insane insane yeah Yeah, totally um and if people want to work with what you what's what's give us the plug oh so easy just go to brightlineeating.com so it's b-r-i-g-h-t bright line l-i-n-e brightlineeating.com and you know we've just totally restructured brightline eating it used to be a thousand dollars for the first year to do brightline eating and we've just made it 20 bucks a month it just couldn't be easier the same program it's incredible value it like it it delivers and then some and it's just so easy to get started now so just come on in and try it and you know if you don't like it within 14 days just get all your money back all 20 bucks right it's just so easy so just come sign up just check it out it's so good so good. Okay. Uh, and uh, thank you so much. I'll put a link to it in the show notes, guys. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And good luck. With the, hopefully, in about 20 minutes from now, you'll find out your book's on the New York Times bestseller. The new book <laughs> is called Resume. Uh, what, and the other yes. two books are called, what are the other two books called? Uh, I actually have them right here, I think. Yeah. So the first one is Brightline Eating. Okay. The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free, Brightline Eating. Yeah. And then the second one is the official Brightline Eating Cookbook, which has amazing oh, nice. recipes in it. 
And then the third one is uh, for people who uh, have experienced chronic relapse, resume, R-E-Z-O-O-M to indicate speed, zoom, do it fast, okay. get back on nice. track. I'll put a link to it in yeah. the show notes. Hey, thank you so much for your time. It's been really awesome talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Bevan. It's been great to get to know you. Take care. Right, Tim, hopefully you got a lot out of the interview. Again, as I, as I said before, I push, uh, started playing the interview. What a fascinating life, eh? Like, it's a life lived and, and really cool to see that transition of turning a life around in and, and, and some massive ways. Like, it's hard to comprehend being in that moment she was in and, and now looking at, you know, sometimes in life, hopefully, I hope you have this, this kind of, I really hope in your life you have these moments where I never thought I could be this person, or I never thought I could have this life that I have. Um, you know, like that younger version of you, you know, hopefully, if you're very young and you're listening to this, hopefully you'll wake up 20 years from now and think, jeepers creepers, I never thought this was possible um, in some area of your life. And it's such a really cool, because I guarantee if Susan, at that early moment when she was in that really broken place, could fast forward to where she is right now and seeing the impact that she can have on the world. And, you know, she's, you know, New York Times best-selling author. You're creating a, a product that's really helping lots of people. Um, you know, pretty high-level person. In that moment, you know, maybe she never saw that. And it's a really nice thing to have in life is that moment where you go, wow, I, I, you wake up and it's like, actually, I'm in a place that I never thought was possible. And, and I guarantee one thing that, that everyone who has that moment has is they have continuous development in their life. And, and probably the people who get stale and, and maybe just kind of day by day and don't really progress are the ones who maybe just don't spend their time on development. Now, I can't be 100% sure about that, but I definitely think that if you commit to the evolution in your development in your life, you're going to be, you know, way more successful or, or, or there's a higher chance that moment will hit you moving forward in your life. So if you want to check out Susan's work, I'll put all the link in the show notes for this show today. Uh, just a couple of things before I wrap things up. Uh, I've got to say I'm pretty excited because my book's going to be out in about another two or three months from now. It's it's getting to the last stages. We're doing book cover design right now. So we're kind of going through those last few steps of the process. I'll be letting you guys know all about this. I'm really excited about the book. Nervous at the same time because you never know what's going to happen with it. But I really hope it's a book that can have a big impact on the world. So you'll be hearing about that this year. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with my Bevan episode. I want to say a big thank you to the patrons. If you aren't a patron, go to Bevan James Isles podcast. Support me. Go through the process. And that way you can support the show. And other than that. Rock on, have an awesome couple of weeks, and as I always say, keep being you.